realistically, what's most often the true bottleneck to advance technology, it's it's people, it's you know, intellectual resources, it's it's smart people who want to work on it. So, you know, you as an engineer have tremendous power. Like if you choose to work on, say, a net good technology versus a net bad technology, you know, you can truly change the cause of humanity. Hello, everybody. Today's win-win episode is, well, it's the opposite of rubbish because I am speaking to Boyan Slat, the visionary founder of the Ocean Cleanup. The Ocean Cleanup is a non-profit taking on the gargantuan task of removing plastic pollution from our waterways. And they're not just cleaning up the garbage patches in our oceans either. They're also building filtration systems on the world's most polluted rivers to catch all their plastic before it reaches the sea. Super inspiring stuff. And as well as getting into the various challenges of this project, we also hear Boyan's unique insights and philosophies around technology, game theory, activism, and of course, competition. On that note, let's dig in. Boyan, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, I first came across your work, I want to say 2014. Wow. Because I remember just being like so down about pollution. I've like litter has always been one of my pet peeves. Mm. And I remember like looking into like who's doing something about this and coming across your project. And I was just like, this is such a brilliant idea. And then I looked at how old you were. And I think you were about 18 at the time, 16? Yeah, 18-ish. Yeah, yeah I was just like, who is this guy <laughs> that is at this age already thinking about this and is just dedicating their life to cleaning up mm. the plastic in our oceans? So talk me through how the ocean cleanup came to you as an idea. So I think I've always been very sort of passionate about making things, building things since it was sort of very young. I, don't, I think it's definitely a bit of an engineering gene, I suppose. So, you know, when I was uh, two, I was already, um, you know, I had the desire to build my own chair because I thought that would be way cooler than, you know, the chair my parents would buy in a store. So, what did you make it out of? Uh, like wooden nails, just very basic. It, um, in my memory, it, it wasn't a very good looking chair, but at least it was functional. I could sit on it. It was like small, like, and so you were outside. two? Yeah, yeah. And uh, how did, were you using a hammer and nails? Like right, what? yeah. For real? Yes. <laughs> That's insane. <laughs> I mean, I guess my my mum kind of trusted me. <laughs> wow. Um, I think, yeah, definitely very thankful for her not being sort of a helicopter uh, parent. Uh, I would always just, um, you know, play like I think around two as well I would just be alone in the streets uh, you know a couple of blocks away from the house and um, yeah that's uh, my mom was kind of comfortable with that but um, so that was kind of the first thing then I really got into, into you know, computers and you know building uh, those kind of things you know building my own video games and things like that and then I had a you know, an explosive phase where I was into chemistry and uh yeah, I think out of all my phases, that's the one my mum probably disliked most because um, there was at some point in time I was 
making a smoke bomb and then I bought some fertilizer and I was distilling uh, ammonium nitrate on the stove in the kitchen and uh, I kind of forgot that I put the thing on the stove and uh, I went outside to do something else and then uh, half an hour later I just saw smoke coming out of all the windows of the house and uh, <laughs> it's like, oops, sorry. <laughs> so that that was probably the closest I've And how old were you to, then? I think about eight, nine years old. So when I was <laughs> okay. uh, around 10, 11, I really got into uh, a thing called water rockets. So essentially... It's like a plastic bottle, right? Right, yeah. You, you use water, water in it, blow it up, and then it would shoot in the sky. And I thought, okay, how far can I take this? So I thought, okay, let's. Um, I, w- I would love to try and get into the Guinness Book of Records with this. So I devised, I devised a plan to launch more than two of them, 200 of them at the same time. Uh, and I, I suppose that was my first real sort of, uh, project experience because I had to find uh, sponsors to give me all the equipment and compressors and uh, to do a partnership with the, the university in my town to um, so that they would lend me their sports field so I can do the thing, uh, to recruit 200 uh, students to, to launch each of these uh, rockets. And uh, yeah, we, we managed to do that. And uh, 213 we, we launched and got into the <laughs> Guinness Book of Records. That was... <laughs> Do you still have that record? No, uh, bloody Coca-Cola broke it with some oh, em- employee man. event. Yeah, that's even worse. So it's like a corporate, right? Yeah, that just shouldn't count. Take it away from some kid. Some kid, and even more perversely, I imagine a lot of the stuff you clean up is made by Coca-Cola in right. the first place. <laughs> you're fishing out the oceans. Yeah, yeah, and then of course the question: How did I get from? putting water in bottles to taking bottles out of water. Mm. You see, beautiful. Yeah, and that was kind of um, a, a chance encounter. I, I suppose I was always thinking about, I always had sort of a desire to, you know, to solve a, sort of a, real, a real problem. You know, I was like thinking about problems, but it wasn't very useful. So, um, and then, yeah, I was uh, on a family vacation in, in Greece and I um, decided I wanted to learn how to do scuba diving. So I got my, my license and I remember you know, my very first dive, I, I went underwater and I was hoping to see all these, these beautiful things like you see in the, um, you know, these famous nature documentaries and the BBC, etc. And um, I went down and looked around me and I just saw this, you know, this garbage dump of... Um, uh, plastic bags, actually more plastic bags than fish. And mm. I was just um, you know, quite disappointed by that. And um, um, and of course, you know, having this sort of engineering way of thinking, I quickly asked myself, okay, how do we solve this, right? So how, how can we clean this up? And um, it just felt like um, an interesting question. And you know, when I have an interest and an obsession, I'm well, I'm like literally obsessed by it, so I can't really think about anything else. So then, um, you know, for weeks and weeks, I just couldn't sleep. I was just thinking about, okay, how, how could we do this? And uh, then I had to do a, a high school science project. It was in the final year of high school. And I decided to um, to study this, this topic, and I got a good grade. And uh, then I um, went to uh, study aerospace engineering, but uh, yeah, after half a year, I still couldn't stop thinking about it. And then that's the point I decided to drop out and, and 
start the ocean cleanup? I think one of the coolest statistics I've heard that you, your research in part uncovered, right, is that, you know, there are, I don't know how many, hundreds of thousands, probably millions of rivers on Earth. I guess it depends how you define a river. It's kind of this fractal, right? So you right. can get two very small ones. But, uh, you know, in, in the scope of our study, we studied 100,000 rivers, and of that, we found that that 1% of those rivers do about 80% of global emissions. And uh, now, I mean, we're, of course, continuously refining these models, but we think it might be even more skewed, the distribution. So mm. it's, um, it's a very small fraction of rivers responsible for, for most of the pollution. Right, and so this research, in part, has sort of shown you directed you towards where the most, you know, the most sort of Pareto efficient, um, well, right. most, where, where to direct your energy, right? Yeah. Because maybe you could explain to people sort of what the two methods of sure. cleaning up plastic that you guys are going about. So this, this two-pronged strategy, and on, on one hand, we uh, work to clean up the, the legacy pollution that's already in the ocean. So for 60 years, we've been putting stuff in, and some of that um, is, has made its way to the open ocean, where you have these circular currents called gyres. And once the plastic is in there, it doesn't go away by itself. So even if we were to turn off the tap, even if no more plastic would enter the ocean, those, those ocean garbage patches that are in those areas, they would persist. So and we want to get the ocean back to its original clean state. So we have to deal with that legacy pollution. But at the same time, there's still a lot of plastic flowing into the ocean today. And uh, that means we also have to stop the source, which is that we you know, put what we call interceptors, which are uh, devices that we put in the mouth of these rivers to intercept the plastic before it uh, can even reach the ocean. And um, yeah, as we speak, we have um, you know, our first system in the infamous Great Pacific Garbage Patch, cleaning up the legacy pollution. So we're now cleaning up an area the size of a football field uh, every five seconds. And um, at the same time, we are uh, currently in 12 of the most polluting rivers around the world, soon to be 20. And the first 20, uh, they will um, basically be the foundation to then scale up to ultimately get to all 1,000 because the 1% of rivers equates to roughly 1,000 rivers. And where are the worst offending rivers yeah, so what's what's quite interesting to see is that the amount of plastic emissions to the ocean is very poorly correlated with the amount of plastic that is being consumed. So in you know, the wealthiest countries of the world, you know, most plastic is, is being consumed, at least per capita. So in total, if you look at North America, um, Europe, Japan, Korea, you know, those places combined, they consume about a third of all the plastics globally, uh, but they're responsible for less than 1% of global emissions. So uh, it's not, um, you know, the uh, you know, people in you know, New York or Paris that are, you know, the, where the, most of the pollution is coming from. Uh, where most of the pollution is coming from is more from um, you know, lower to middle-income countries, where... Um, you know, people are starting to have enough wealth to consume uh, goods wrapped in plastic, but where there is no good waste infrastructure yet to right. to take care of the waste. And um, so it's really so this this systems issue. And you know, the thing is that you know, waste management is is very expensive. So already the world spends 
more than four hundred uh, billion dollars a year on just collecting and disposing of waste, and that is you, know, you need sort of, um, you know multitude of that to to get the same level of waste collection that we have here to the other seven billion people uh, mm-hmm. in the world, right? So. I think it's it's a matter of time. I think ultimately, once those countries get richer, they will start to have more and more resources to invest in, in waste management. But uh, unfortunately, there is this this in between phase where um, yeah, you you do see a lot of leakage. So uh, so places like um, so so most of the leakage we see coming from South, uh, Latin America, uh, West Africa, and Southeast Asia. Mm-hmm. So really places like Manila, Jakarta, Mumbai, um, Guatemala, uh, Lagos, you know, those are really the, the plastic pollution hotspots of the world. So is your goal to build interceptors in all of those, around those cities? Yeah. So we are in Indonesia, Vietnam, right. um, Malaysia, uh, soon in Bangkok, Thailand. Uh, we're in Dominican Republic, Jamaica, Guatemala, and we have one in LA as well. And how have the governments been, by and large? Supportive, but challenging, I would say. <laughs> so, I mean, there's no one that says, like, I don't want you to clean my river. Um, but it's just the same thing all around the world where, uh, you know, there's just a lot of bureaucracy. It's, it's a weird thing. There's not, like, um, a standard procedure for putting something in a river. Uh, so you so you often have to start from scratch in terms of the the legislative um, the, the legislative framework, mm. and um, you know so, so sometimes you you know we we've been in situations where you're dealing just with seven ministries in for just one river to get one piece of paper, Ugh. which is uh, a challenge. You know, another kind of ironic thing is that. Um, you know, you also always have to deal with environmental permitting, which is, um, you know, if you think about it, like the amount of delays that has caused to us probably resulted in thousands of tons of plastic that are now in the ocean because of environmental permitting. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, um, yeah, so that's always a challenge. And, and again, I don't think it's bad intent. The governments are really supportive. And in actually a lot of the places they... You know, either run the operation, uh, the interceptor operation, or they they take care of the operational expenditures. So, um, so they're really part of the project. It's just um, you know it, it just takes a lot of time and energy to set mm-hmm. up these partnerships. When it comes to cleaning up the, the the pollution that's already in the ocean, it's international waters. So then you have this you know, this very complicated, um, yeah, sort of misalignment of incentives. Right? You have. Mm-hmm. Um, um, a, a multilateral uh, coordination problem. Can you explain uh, that a little bit more for people? It's a situation where you have a um, where it's you know the good of the the single actor is not necessarily aligned with you know the good for for everyone, right? So, um, so for example, with overfishing, it's you know there's a selfish interest to to maximize the amount of fish that you catch, but then if everyone do, does that, then everyone is sort of worse off. Um, so the same. Uh, goes for you know, the plastic in the ocean. Um, you know, of course, it, there's a certain cost to um, to limiting pollution emissions, uh, but ultimately we all suffer from uh, a loss of biodiversity, economic impact, uh, health threat to 3 billion people around the world that rely on seafood. 
So, so that's the ocean issue. But the, you know, the thing with the rivers, you know, I think what's what's quite powerful is the fact that uh, about 97, 98% of the pollution that is emitted comes back to a shoreline within a year. So mm. most of the pollution that, say, Indonesia emits remains in Indonesian waters, ends up on Indonesian beaches. So um, so in fact, there is this strong sort of selfish interest. Right, in, which actually in, in some ways makes the problem easier then, right? For sure, yeah. It's, um, you know, we don't have to appeal to... So the um, to being sort of a good global citizen to mm. you know put interceptors in rivers. Now, if you if you want to do something good for your city, for your state, for your country, um, you know this pays back you know hundred x uh, in terms of your your ROI in terms of just putting this into your river. So I think um, so I think the the most important thing now is you know, to build success stories that people know. And okay, this. This works. This can be done. Uh, these are the numbers that actually show the you know, the cost benefit of doing it, and um, you know building the relationship with these governments, getting the you know a foothold, starting with one deployment, one city, and then um, you know once they see the value, I think it should become more and more easy. I think in the future to to scale that up. Yeah. So some of the pushback I've seen you get on Twitter um, is, and I can sort of somewhat empathize with this question, which is if so much of this problem of the plastic is coming from, you know, this idea of single-use plastics, the lack of disposal systems, you know, proper waste management systems Mm. within these countries, um, then isn't, by, you know, by providing a sort of net to to, to clean it all up, isn't that disincentivizing them from Mm. actually investing in fixing the problem in the first place by either, you know, having better stricter regulations on single-use plastic or plastic in general or by installing proper waste management so that it doesn't just end up on the streets and then washed into rivers. Yeah. How do you feel about those arguments and what is your answer to them? Yeah, you know, I understand the, you know, the concern and I understand the, the, the question. I think it's a valid question to ask. But I think in reality we've seen very much the, the opposite where you know, before we deploy somewhere, um, there is just you know, nobody's talking about plastic pollution. It's kind of this invisible thing. People don't really think about it. Then when we you know, bring the interceptor there, it actually um, you know, suddenly makes the problem top of mind. It's, um, you know, it's in the, the local news. Everyone's talking about it. Um, so suddenly this becomes an issue that, that people think about. And, and on top of that, these interceptors, they, um, they don't just prevent this stuff from going into the ocean. Um, but they also collect a lot of data about what we collect, and with that, mm. of course, we you know, they're essentially measurement tools for the government to see whether their upstream policies and their waste management whether that actually is improving or are the opposite, right? So, so is in like the type of plastic you you are collecting? It's like, what, is it plastic bags right. or bottles or, or exactly, and and the amount. So, right. do, do the interventions work or or not? Um, so. Yeah, so I think rather than these things being um, in conflict, I think they actually um, you know complemented each other, and that's actually what we see, for example, in the Dominican Republic, where uh, because we brought the interceptor there, uh, the United Nations Development Program was able to uh, start a um, initiative to bring waste management to the poorer communities that live alongside the river that now are getting their waste collected, where previously they would throw it in in the river. So. Mm. So yeah, and that's 
Uh, so actually, we we can see a, a reduction in the amount of plastic that the interceptors collect, rather than an increase. That's amazing. That's actually so. It's really counterintuitive. It's it's almost like showing people they were so used to just like they thought there was no other option. Right. It's just like I have plastic. I, I'm done with this. On the ground it goes. Exactly. And showing no, actually, this is what happens. This is where it all goes. And probably that visual of seeing it all backing up against the interceptor in the river, maybe yeah. that's shocking to people. And right. it's like, look, not only are we trying to stop this because this is a problem, but sure. there are other ways. That, you know, you don't have to live this way. And I mean, you can also do sort of the the reversal test on the argument of, okay, well, if that's the issue, like where where should we stop? Should we also stop? Sweeping the streets, you know, should we stop mm. collecting garbage because we shouldn't collect make garbage in the first place, right? So it's like um, it, I don't think it's acceptable to let this leakage go into the ocean. And um, um, I think, yeah, uh, it, it doesn't really matter how we stop it as long as we we stop it. I think so. Um, yeah, so I think we should focus on what are the most effective interventions rather than. What is ideolog- ideologically the most sort of preferable solution? I think there's um, kind of almost this dogmatic belief in a lot of environmentalism that you know, addressing the root cause is the only thing we should do, uh, and actually not just environmentalism. I think it's it's with with many issues. I mean, you see it today as well with the um, with the weight loss drug situation, right? Is that big? Right, it, yeah. um, which. I think if it works as well as it's, people are saying it is, I think it's it's an amazing thing that people have now a way to uh, reduce their weight and reduce the negative health income, outcomes uh, of uh, of obesity. But uh, it's, it's it's been quite amazing to see, um, yeah, especially from you know, outlets like the Guardian, um, in terms of being very aggressive about dismissing it because it kind of goes against this sort of ideal picture of now we should address the root cause of you know, um, you know we should educate people to um, you know to eat less or we need to put taxes on sugar and things like that. But of course, those things have been tried for decades to very Clearly little not effect. Working. No, yeah. <laughs> so I think ultimately, okay, I understand that. Ideally, you don't want people to be reliant on on, on drugs, etc. Um, but if it works, I think it's still you know a good thing. And um, ultimately, I think it's about the you know how good is a certain intervention uh, in in mitigating the negative, you know, the, the real problem, rather than you know in what step of the certain you know cascade of of actions does it fall like. Usually, there's not one root cause, right? So it's kind of a combination of different factors working together, and then you know if you just keep going back in terms of okay, what's what causes this, and then what causes that? I mean, ultimately, you end up with the big bang, and like right, or you get you get to that. It's my favorite one. Of my favorite memes is the fish crawling out of right. the sea for the first time in the land. How do we stop that? <laughs> <laughs> and it's interesting to understand this this. This mindset that, as you say, you call, sort of call it dogmatic, mm. um, that sometimes seems to, it's almost self-defeating. That mm. I wonder if it comes from like a form, almost a form of puritism, puritanism, yes. puritanism right. right? Because like what you're advocating for is basically like, yes, I know in an ideal world, we wouldn't be using single-use plastics or we wouldn't be using so much of this uh, and, and people would be more conscious of what they do with it and ha- right. take more personal responsibility. But in reality, that is just not going to happen. And so mm. we need a pragmatic approach 
that actually just solves the problem yeah. in the long run. So it's almost it, it, it almost comes down to personal philosophy of like deontology versus consequentialism. <laughs> exactly. It's interesting. Yeah. W- would you describe yourself as a sort of consequentialist? Yeah. Uh, we should probably sure. define that. Would you like to? Sure. Go. Um, so, uh, oh God. So I'm not <laughs> a proper moral, by any means a moral philosopher, um, but it seems like there's these three schools of ethics, which are schools of thought of ethics, which are um, deontology, which is basically like there are rules, uh, it's almost like pre-existing in the fabric of the universe of morality mm. and like axioms axioms exactly um you like lying is bad mm. um and if you break these rules you are doing an immoral act um so that's like deontology and then there's consequentialism which more is a focus on the outcome of an action so it's not so much what the action is but what are the consequences of that action and you know are those consequences negative or positive and mm. so we evaluate the action based on those and then there's virtue ethics, which I can never remember. So let's not worry about that. But uh, the, do you know what? The, can you define virtue ethics? Um, it, it's sort of to be a good person, right? So it's kind of like. Uh, so again, it's, it's kind of like these, like, it's like, almost like a hybrid between the two. Yeah, it's like, um, I think it's very much from like the individual, right? So like, um, it's more about intent, I suppose. I see, right. But is it, yeah, so deontology is following these pre-existing rules virtue ethics would be like what was your intent in the first place yeah. was it coming from a place of virtue right and then consequentialism is like what are the consequences of the actions right. that you did right and and it feels like it this idea of the, almost like these two these two schools of thought of how to solve problems hmm. stem out of these different moral foundations as a consequentialist it's so it's kind of weird but um you know, being a pragmatist is some very offensive to to some people. <laughs> like, Why do you think that is? I, I think there's sort of this moralistic point of view. I think that it, it, the you know, the word puritanism, I think you you just used. So um, it's almost like you know, humanity is doing something bad on the natural world, and we should sort of redeem ourselves <laughs> for mm. the bad that we do. You know, you get into I've been criticized like, oh, like you, you take away uh, with what you do. Indeed, you take away personal responsibility from from people. And it's like, who cares? Like, as long as we solve the problem, why does it matter that? Uh, I mean, to be fair, you could make a consequential argument that it's like if you remove the need for personal responsibility from people, hmm. that that skill will then atrophy amongst the population. So that if you then come into a new situation where actually personal responsibility really matters, now you've got a group like you've just got a population who are incapable of doing that. Mm. So, you, but that's kind of putting it into a consequentialist lens again, though, right? Sure. Yeah. 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 I, I mean, I have to say, I, I like oscillate between. You know, there's there's definitely situations where consequentialism is superior, and then when sort of more like a rules based moral philosophy is superior, mm. and I think the the where consequentialism sort of breaks down is when you can't accurately measure the consequences, mm. right? That's when we have to defer to something like deontology because if you can't measure the impact, you don't have a good idea of of how, yeah, to sort of essentially quantify yeah. it or you're, or you're at risk of having bias in your quantification, mm. then your calculus is all screwed up. Sure. I mean, I guess you can, can still have a... A, sort of a rational, sort of a Bayesian approach to that, right? So you can 
to think about, okay, you can think in terms of probabilities and you can think, okay, this is probably a good thing, but you still think in terms of outcomes rather than I just fundamentally think this is a good thing to do. I mean, you know, another example where you can really see this uh, deontology versus consequentialism debate is in terms of um, are you allowed to do harm for the greater good? And, you know, of course, you have to make decisions like this all the time. And even doctors who sign the, um, you know, or take the Hippocratic Oath of, you know, you shall do no harm. I mean, they do harm. They they put knives into people, right? Mm. But ultimately they do that to remove a greater harm, a tumor, whatever. Um, so, so again, I think what we do as a society there is we take the, you know, the consequentialist approach because if you're not allowed to do harm, I mean, we wouldn't have Can't any do anything. doctors, right? So, and same goes with what we do in the ocean cleanup is, um, I mean, we have, of course, we do our utmost best to minimize any negative side effects. Our bycatch is like, extremely low, so because we move very slowly through the ocean, we have a bunch of... Bycatch, can you define that? Um, so anything that we don't want to catch, essentially. So I see, like sea fish life, or something, fish, yeah. yeah. So we uh, consistently get roughly below 0.1% of, of the weight. Um, so just to put into context, like fisheries has usually are between 10 and 20%. Arguably 100% because... Right, because that's what I'm trying to do. Um, They're sweeping the oceans of life. Yeah. Right, uh, but uh, so, so it's very safe, but still, I mean, it's not zero, right? And um, you know, sometimes um, you know, there is you know, a biologist that stands up like, hey, you're, you're killing this, you know, this little organism, so uh, we should be worried about that. And of course, you know, I don't want to say like, hey, that's... That's not important. Of course, it's important. But I think what's important is to take the the total picture and really look at the the costs and the benefits as a whole. Right? How many than, how many animals will die if you leave that plastic there? Yeah, exactly. And I think that goes down to I think a lot of issues with environmentalism. It's this um, you know, sort of one sided approach. We just talked about the environmental regulations, which can do harm. I mean, you have this thing like called the um, um, the uh, precautionary principle, which is uh, often used against things like GMOs or nuclear energy. Like, hey, we don't know everything yet, so we should not do anything until we know for sure that it's safe. And you know, besides the fact that it's very hard to know anything for sure, so you can use it in you know until infinity to to stop stuff. It's also you know, not the right way to look at it, I think, because you know, delaying things can do harm if the status quo is a suboptimal, harmful situation, right? So, plastic in the ocean kills, um, you know, untold amount of sea life every day. Every day that we delay that is is a net harm for for the ocean. So, um, so I think that's you know definitely sort of part of the. Um, I think more the sort of ideological or philosophical um, you know, foundation of, of some of the criticism that we receive. Yeah, it must be very frustrating. Um, I've certainly gotten frustrated on your behalf sometimes looking at your Twitter <laughs> replies. And I'm just, you know, because to me, what you're doing is such an obvious win win. Mm. You're providing an infrastructure, a, a technological solution to a very large problem. Um, 
and you know presumably you could be doing something you've clearly got a very powerful brain on your shoulders mm. you could be running a big vc fund or making yourself you know you could be doing a self enrichment thing mm. and probably be a you know at least a centimillionaire by now but you're choosing <laughs> yeah. to do this very philanthropic thing mm. that benefits everybody and is actually taking care of the commons. Mm. Um, so it's, uh, you know, it's, it's definitely something that is like sticking, you know, I, I always use this term Moloch, right. which describes this, this, uh, this game theoretic dilemma of if, you know, if I, I don't want to do this tactic of using cheap plastic, but if I don't do it, um, all my competitors are going to anyway, and I'll get out competed. So I might as well do it too. Mm. That it's, that's a lose-lose situation on net and that's what Moloch is the sort of god of and you have found a, a win-win solution to try and fix that. Thank you. Yeah. How do you deal with unfair criticism when that comes along? Does it bother you? Uh, yeah, there were definitely times when it, it hit me emotionally, especially when it was coming from... Yeah, I was just getting started, and of course, I read into all the existing literature on the problem, and then you know, seeing some people from organizations, other NGOs that you, you know, admired, you know, criticizing you because they say like, you know, it's bad what you're doing and everything. That's, um, yeah, I mean, that was you know painful at times. Even had scientists to tell me like, you know, you breed distrust because you think you're above the experts from someone with a PhD and it's like, I mean, it should be about the arguments, right? It should be about <laughs> evidence. And um, I mean, there's many people who are really more eloquent than, than I am on this topic, but you know, there's this quote from uh, Richard Feynman that I love, which is, science is um, the belief in the ignorance of experts. Mm. And um, yeah, that's certainly true. I mean, there's... There should be no room for sort of arguments of authority. What's your take on the degrowth arguments, the sort of the degrowth movement as a possible solution to reducing plastic pollution? Hmm. I understand why it sort of intuitively feels logical. So if you look at sort of historical trends, of course, human civilization metrics have done this great at the same time. Um, environmental things have usually gone in the opposite direction. Uh, not exclusively, but it tends to be overall that direction. So you know, from that, you could kind of infer that, or perhaps there's just some fundamental incompatibility between our highly technological civilization and the, the natural world. And then <laughs> it's only sort of one more intuitive step to say, like, okay, maybe to get more better biosphere, we should have less of the stuff that's causing it. Less people. <laughs> yeah, less. And, le and less of their technology. Yeah, some of them make that pretty explicit, that they want less people, fewer people. Um, but um, yeah, some of them focus more on the, the consumption of goods mm -hmm. and of energy. But I think there's a few issues with that. <laughs> so firstly, I don't think... People want that. It's very hard to sell like um, that. You know, tomorrow will be slightly worse than today. Like people want the future to be better. And then, you know, there are just billions of people that have much worse lives uh, because of a lack of energy and, and goods, and they want to live like we do here in, in, in the West as well. So, 
it's uh, and I think it's it's not fair to deny them of, of that possibility. I think they should have every right to to live like that. So realistically, the world will be consuming more rather than less going forward. Um, and then, you know, sometimes people are you okay? Maybe we can do with half the amount of energy that we use today. But then, I mean, if the other half is still produced unsustainably, I mean, it's still not a solution. So, so if reductio at absurdum, like the only way to, you know, that that path can actually work is to, to really go all the way back to the caves. And then, even then, you can argue that the per capita environmental impact of you know, early hominids was significantly higher than individuals today. Like if, just, if you feel like you're bored, you can Google the quaternary megafauna extinction, which was this uh, situation you know, tens of thousands of years ago that whenever humans hopped to a new continent, surprisingly, somehow all the big mammals just disappeared quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's like, Pretty, sh- we're pretty sure that us humans caused that, and of course we were just with a very small number of humans back then. So, so probably the per capita environmental impact of humans was actually much greater in the sort of pre-industrial societies compared to today. So, um, so it, it's just I, I think the situation that we find ourselves in. The only ways forward. Uh, we have to accept we live in this uh, technological world. We have to accept people want more, and that um, you know we need to raise many people out of poverty still. And what we need to do is we need to develop technology that provides all those goods to humans without having those negative side effects. To design our civilization to be compatible with both humans as well as the uh, the natural world. So I'd love to understand more the incentives that are driving plastic pollution in the first place. Like, it seems to me that, you know, again, it's this chicken and egg, you know, oh, it's the person who's buying the cheap product and then not not dealing with the you know just throwing it on the ground but then it's like well it's the companies that are using the cheap packaging mm. you know plastic is cheaper than paper or wood or whatever um so they're using that and then it's like but then it's the i don't know you can keep going back and back and it just seems like it all comes down to incentives and, and right. everyone just trying to do the most efficient cost cutting mm-hmm. thing would you agree with that yeah i mean definitely for for companies, it's plastic is cheaper than other materials. For consumers, it's more convenient, cheaper too. So definitely, it's it's like good for all the individual actors, but uh, collectively, it has this huge sort of externality that is not properly priced into the you know the cost of right. the material. So how do we internalize those externalities? You know, so that you know, is it? <laughs> can you like put QR codes onto onto every item so that you can trace it back? So this was the company that created <laughs> it, you know, because that's the thing. These companies, they're 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 profit profit and loss at the end of each year. Yeah, they're the the actual like cost of that item is not being fully mm. 
incorporated into those into the into their PL, right. right? The the cost that it is having on the environment. Mm-hmm. There should be like some kind of tax, essentially. Yes. So yeah, what what role can regulation play? Which which regulations do you think are good and, and uh, ineffective? I guess there are two ways to to do this. Either you invent a solution that is sort of cheaper and um, does not have the externalities. And of course, this is kind of the approach that seems to be winning when it comes to climate change. Just make solar power very cheap, make mm-hmm. electric cars cheaper than gas cars, and you know that's how you get out of this. Or you indeed have some regulation that kind of changes the, you know, makes it more of a level playing field where it's um, you know the, the external costs are properly incorporated in the price through a uh, through a tax and. Um, Yes, I'm not an expert on on taxation and uh, what's the good and bad examples there, um, but in principle, uh, and of course, you know, there, people have been thinking about this for for a long time about how to how to do it. But it is, it's definitely a fact that the um, you know the the full price of plastic is not taken into account in in the plastic uh, production. But plastic is essentially just way too too cheap and. That's a, it's quite interesting what you see is um so PET is usually the the highest value plastic that you find in the environment and especially in the 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 lowest level of development countries that we operate in you find very little PET hmm. because um that still has enough value for waste pickers to to take that out of the river or to take it off the streets so so there you really see like uh, yeah it's um Plastic is essential. If if all the plastic would be like that, and if the, the if the price would be high enough, also in richer countries, then you wouldn't have this this pollution issue. It's essentially it really comes down to plastic being incredibly cheap, and then also so it's it's plastic being falsely cheap. So it sounds like actually like it's a failure of markets. Yeah, it's 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 very cheap to make and to put in the environment, and it's relatively costly to take it out and to um, to recycle like even if you think about the so the you know re, the cost of recycled plastic uh, versus f- producing new plastic it depends on the oil price but it's uh, there are times when just making new plastic is just a lot cheaper than uh, reusing plastics uh, that already exists and that's just because uh, it's it's quite a costly process to collect and recycle while making new stuff very efficient. Um, and that's a part of the reason why we don't have an aluminium problem in the world because it just takes so much energy to turn bauxite, the the ore, into mm-hmm. aluminium. Um, you know, you'd much rather collect and recycle that than make new aluminium. Uh, so that's why you know, in some countries you see up to, I think, like 98, 99% recycling rates, like in Brazil, I believe, of aluminium. Because it is, it retains its its value because it has this embedded energy cost in mm. in the material, which you don't have for plastic. Pla- producing plastic is like super cheap. Yeah, so it's it's almost like a tyranny of efficiency. Yeah, in some way that that's what's screwing us up because it's just so it's so energy efficient to make that it'll just keep propagating more and more and more and more until. Yeah. I, mean, I guess it ties in with this idea of Jevons paradox. Are you familiar with that? Might be. <laughs> it's um, th- this idea of like you, some new energy efficiency is discovered, um, some new form of fuel or a new way of making something. 
And you would think, therefore, that the amount of energy used to make that thing would decrease on mm. net because it's more efficient. But in actuality, you end up using more because more and more people then want that thing. It's like adding a lane to a motorway or something. Yes, exactly. It's just like, okay, well, more people get cars and get, you know, right. it just more, you know, it encourages more car usage. Sure. And so you end up in the same bottleneck. Right. Anyway, Jevons, J-E-V-E-N-S. I actually recommend people go and like read the Wikipedia on it. It's pretty short, but it's a really important principle. Yeah. And I think it is important to, to point out that that um, plastic also has good sides to it, right? So I think that's... Um, it's something that's often overlooked by uh, a lot of environmentalists as well is that it also provides a lot of value to the world. It's um, especially if you go to the um, you know, the, you know, the the lower income parts of the world, uh, people's lives are demonstrably better mm. because they are able to transport water in, in plastic bottles. Um, you know, like it's much lighter. Safety of you know, being able to to drink bottled water, um, you know, to build their roofs out of, and you know, things like that. It's um, it makes also here, of course, medical applications, making things like cars lighter. Uh, plastic does provide a lot of good, but the thing is, um, you know, I guess every technology has sort of good sides and bad sides, and what's important is that we try and keep the good and get rid of the, the the bad sides to to maximize the the net benefit of every invention we do. When I asked on Twitter, oh I'm interviewing Boyan, what what should I ask him? The most common question that came up was did that plastic straw ban actually do anything? I hate plastic <laughs> straws. How prevalent are they in the oceans really? Um, yeah. <laughs> my suspicion is is that's an example of a dumb regulation. Um, yeah. Would you agree? Yeah. <laughs> Why did that happen? It, it it started with this this video, and then it was popularized by uh, a few people, including um, a well known actor. And once at a at a, an event, I, I bumped into him, so I I talked to him about it and asked him like, okay, what are your sort of motivations to to focus on these these straws? And he, he said a couple of interesting things. Like first, he said like, I mean, it's, it's not really. It's not really about the, the straws per se, but it's like a good conversation starter, and it's something that you know is like a, it's a beginning, and then it kind of we hope it spreads to more and more uh, products, and um, and also it's just um, a way to give some give people something to you know to do. I, I guess it sounds a bit funny, but it gives them something to feel like they can contribute, right? And you know, I was thinking about that, and I thought, like, well, you know, sure, you have. Um, you know, if the if we conclude that the you know, the, the, the benefits of doing you know, banning straws is is relatively small, you know, but I think there is sort of this this cost side to it, right? Because um, I think first and foremost, uh, I think there is this big risk of polarization of plastic. Pollution. I think the great thing has always been that it was sort of politically neutral. So uh, it's something everyone, anyone could get behind, regardless of their political orientation. I've really made a strong, conscious effort with the ocean cleanup to to keep it that way and to to welcome support from people across the spectrum. And I'm I'm very proud that we have um, support from people like um, 
Mark Benioff, who's I think traditionally more on the the left side of the political spectrum, to people like uh, Peter Thiel, who's um, you know a Donald Trump supporter, and everyone in in the middle, right? So uh, we're you know apolitical. This is something that's for everyone, you know, can be supported by everyone. And then the straw thing came about, and suddenly it entered the realm of the the culture wars, right? Where it was just this. Um, because of course, there's there's some people that are really strong believers in you know, personal liberty, and it feels like something is imposed on them. And some people are like really allergic to that, right? And it became this, um, you know, this this another battleground. And I think uh, that's like playing with fire because as soon as a problem enters the sort of the tribal culture war, that's just very hard to can't get it out. Can't get one out. more street. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and uh, you can't make any progress anymore on the issue. So, so, so that worried me. And I think, fortunately, the whole thing was contained with the straws. I think plastic pollution as a whole wasn't super effective, but, but still, I think that was um, that was something I, I was really worried about. And and then also, of course, the um, you know, the willpower of people is really a a finite resource. So. I think even more so than um, you know than money or, or time. It's really you know people can only worry about so many things, and um, I'd rather have them use their desire to do something to do something that actually has an impact than kind of you know letting that you know all that energy sort of disappear in the void because it doesn't you know do anything. And and then also I think it it just gives a um, it gave a an opportunity for companies to kind of do um, you know, greenwashing or kind of um, window dressing. So I remember there was this this headline uh, or, the, or this art, this article about um, sort of a, a well-known fast food uh, chain in the um, and this was in the UK where they they made the switch to not proactively give plastic straws, but to let the the consumer decide whether they would uh, so they have to ask for a straw to get one and then there was this quote from the the country manager of the uh, of the company that says like like we we are you know very happy to help do our bit for the environment and it's like you sell beef <laughs> which is probably uh the um you know the highest you know, as the highest carbon footprint of of any t- type of, of of food right so um and what you do with the straw is like Absolutely, you know, measurable. Yeah, <laughs> in terms of impact, I think that 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 again, I think is kind of a a harmful side effect. And then on top of that, just if it's really about these sort of second order effects that this person was telling me about, I mean, I think we should be open and transparent about that. I think it's it's not. I think it's kind of lying to. To not to not do that, right? It's, and it's it's like it's disrespecting the intelligence of people because most people can see through this stuff. Yeah, you know, it's what happened <laughs> so much in COVID, like when they were like, "Oh no, masks don't work, so please don't buy them." And it was like that's what they said <laughs> to the British public when really the reality was they just were running out of masks, and this was early on in the yeah. pandemic, and they needed it for healthcare worker needed them for healthcare workers. Right. Just tell people that because like no people aren't stupid. They're like. Right. Obviously, a mask is going to be better than no mask. It might not be that effective, but it's like, come on, like it's pretty obvious. I think it just as a general heuristic, you know, 
it tends to be the case that second order effects are smaller than first order effects. Like if you try and achieve A and it has side effect B, probably because you make this conscious effort, A is going to be bigger in terms mm-hmm. of magnitude than than B. So um, I think this is kind of a criticism that we sometimes receive. Like, uh, and actually, this this actor I was, I was speaking to, he then started to make the point. Like, actually, and he, he was expressing his concern about our work because he was worried that people um, are would become complacent, right? That they would think that uh, the problem is solved because of of, of what we do. Um, but yeah, then again, you're kind of thinking for someone else, and you're making these assumptions. Well, probably okay. This might be a second order effect. You know, we actually don't really see that. We see that the, um, the work that we do actually inspires more work like this. So we see actually a positive snowball effect. Um, but even if that wouldn't be the case, you know, that second order effect is probably many times smaller than the, the first order effect of actually just solving the problem. Well, one thing I'm perpetually in a tiz about is like how much as a sort of, where, where should my personal efforts be going into? You know, mm. I... I would say I'm a like deep environmentalist at heart. You know, I came from some, as I said, hated litter. Um, I've always tried to use reusable. I, I, every time I buy a plastic of water, something inside of me dies a little bit. Like I'm like, I could just be reusing. Where's right. my Where's my <laughs> aluminium container sure. to fill up again? But at the same time, I'm aware of the fact that like you know, living in the US or Europe. Waste management is really good. Landfill is actually very good. Like they're sealed. It's not like stuff is leaching into the environment. Hmm. Um, recycling is actually often quite energy expensive. It sometimes gets shipped off to like some country, which then just dumps it in the rivers anyway. Mm-hmm. So like, what are the sort of trade-offs that someone living in the West, you know, the average person listening to this um, should be considering about like their own personal usage? Yeah, I find this one of the the hardest questions to, to answer, honestly, because... There is, uh, sure, you can change things in your individual life, but in terms of how big the impact actually is compared to, say, supporting an organization that isn't operating in in the countries where most pollution comes from, I think there's just so many orders of magnitude difference there that that's probably the right thing to do. And I'm, um, and, and this it's not like just a, a shameless plug for the ocean cleanups, like. There are other organizations you can donate to, <laughs> but uh, uh, like uh, you know, there's an organization called Sungai Watch that you know, does barriers in uh, on Bali, and there's another organization called Maria Verde that does these things in Panama. Do you collaborate with any of those? We're not yet operational in those places, but if we scale to those places, we definitely are planning to work with. You know, the, we always try to work with with local organizations for sure. Um, so. Yeah, because I mean, the, the the fact is, just the the chance that your plastic ends up in the environment, as long as you don't litter, it's just very tiny in uh, in a country like the US or or Europe. I think from a resource point of view, I think it's still a good thing to to avoid single use plastics to to reuse. So. Um, there is, um, you know, when you look at the just the the energy balance, just reusing the same thing is is, is a good thing. Um, but to I suppose to to complicate things even more, um, you know, producing plastic is is relatively energy efficient. So 
for example, a, a reusable um, tote bag from cotton, uh, I think you would have to reuse, I forgot the number, but I think it's the order of hundreds or thousands of times before it actually outweighs... The energy just, cost of one plastic bag. Yeah, or just a right. hundred or a thousand plastic bags, actually. Oh. So uh, to just keep reusing or to gotcha. not reuse. I, right. I see, yeah, the, the other way around. Yeah. Yeah. I think on that it would probably be good to not avoid plastic, but to not keep throwing it out. That's probably the, the best thing to do. And then, but that's from an energy and a resource point of view. And then when it comes to the... Um, yeah, plastic pollution in the environment. I think as long as you don't litter, it's um, yeah, it's just very uh, it's a very low chance that your plastic end, ends up in the environment. Probably the <laughs> the biggest ocean plastic footprint you would have is if you were to spend a vacation in Indonesia or something, just mm. because <laughs> just that one week in that sort of system with that. Waste management right, the, the, the bottled water you drink and so on. Yeah, Every, just assume that like you need to bring those bottles home with you. Basically, squish them into your luggage. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I must admit, I actually don't do that. But ironically, that's probably if you think right? really about the individual level. That's and even probably, like the fuel cost <laughs> of flying it home because it's pretty light. As long yeah. as you squish it, make it, it doesn't take up lots of bag space. Yeah, maybe. It's I don't kind know. of insane, though. <laughs> so That is nuts. Yeah. So if you really focus on, say, what we can do here in the West, I think one would be stop shipping uh, garbage that we make here to uh, lower-income countries. We're still doing that? Some of it, yeah. Um, because, and it's, I think it's also a bit more complicated than some people make it seem because it's actually kind of an economic transaction. There's a lot of recycling infrastructure in these countries. So... They buy the plastic. Uh, you have very cheap transport usually to these countries because you have the containers with the the, the new newly manufactured goods coming to us, and then so you have empty, empty containers. And you just stuff them with the right. <laughs> so you just fill them with garbage and bring that to uh, countries like Malaysia. Uh, but you know those industries they tend to be quite quite shady, so you don't know exactly what happens to them. Sometimes it does end up in the in, in the environment, right? So I think that would be definitely something that would be good to stop. And uh, yeah, then just um, using development money from from the West in these countries. I think it's it's relatively at least when you think about interception. I mean, it, I think it it will be about a million and a half per river to do this. So for about a billion and a half initial investment, we can just close the tap, and then you know, of course, it's not the ultimate solution. I think ultimately we do need to upgrade the waste management infrastructure. Uh, but at least to buy the world time to stop that stuff from going into the ocean. Um, yeah, that's, I think, a very cost-effective intervention. So would you say that funding is your main constraint? Right now it's about having the, the organizational capabilities to do it and the technology still. So I think when it comes to cleaning up the legacy pollution, you know, we're doing it, we know we can do it, but we feel it's not yet responsible to scale to many cleanup systems because it's we first want to squeeze out all the performance we can from one cleanup system before scaling it up because once you add systems, you add boats, those are expensive, so then your your cost really goes up. So first, you know, we, we essentially we have to have the, the discipline to be small first in order to scale effectively later. So, uh, so next nine months, it's all about 
you know, maximizing the the performance. Uh, we uh, we need to get. I think right now we're at about. I think the record we have is about 150 kilos per hour that the, the system collects. We need to get that above 300 to to be nominal and to to really feel like hey, we we feel like we're ready to to now scale up. Um, so that's really just about making it efficient, making it cost effective, and then in reverse. Uh, we're currently having this first batch of 20 rivers that um, we use to essentially teach ourselves how to do it. So these are in many different countries, so we learn how to interact with, with different governments. It, um, they're very different rivers, so there were different types of interceptor we have there, so also to learn how to make those effectively. And um, uh, so, so it's really focused on completing those first 20 first before we then start scaling up again because if we if we don't get rid of the mistakes now and we're going to m- make mistakes in the next 100 rivers mm. um, that will be you know very problematic very expensive, very expensive. <laughs> yeah. so we want to make those mistakes before we're big essentially so that's why we need to have this discipline so next 9 months is about completing those first 20 rivers so that um, yeah we we have all the knowledge we need to scale effectively starting mid next year. I've been thinking a bit about this idea of, you know, some people claim that technology is values neutral, Mm. right? That, you know, it's not the technology itself. It's not, it's not guns that kill people. It's the people that do it. Right. And, you know, to the effect of a technology is just, is what it is. It's how the humans use it that determines whether it's good or bad. Um, and then there's this really interesting article by um, the consilience project, which talks about how, what basically makes the argument that technology is not, values neutral um and that it depending on the technology itself it will shape behavior Hmm. um so like arguably something like instagram comes along which is very image based that will tend to make people be more uh vain you know they'll tend to favor more vanity flavored things uh, or that mode of uh that that medium of information exchange as opposed to via words um or you have like some technologies which are more offense versus defense bias, you yes. know, a hand grenade versus a vaccine or something yes. like that. Um, would you, which sort of camp would you say you fall in on that? Or how do you think about this? Yeah, I think this phrase technology is neutral. It's, it's just what we do with it. I think it's the, the biggest lie people tell about technology. Uh, I think it's it's very wrong. I think you, you already mentioned a few good examples. Like just... Think of some extremes, indeed, like a, an alternative for uh, CFCs that doesn't harm the ozone layer. I think that's objectively a, a very good thing. Uh, versus, um, you know, developing uh, a new type of uh, weapon that everyone can three D print in their backyard or something like that. I think there is, or a, a very highly pathogenic uh, virus or something like that. Um, so it's it's kind of this. You know, Stephen Pinker has this great book called the the blank slate uh, about the denial of human nature, where you know, for all sorts of political reasons, uh, people deny that there is this. Um, you know, there's kind of there's a direction in part embedded into us in our DNA in our genes, and I think a similar situation is the case with. Technology. I think there's a denial of technology nature, where indeed the you know, the inventor, 
um, you know, already embeds a certain direction uh, into the, you know, into the technology because, you know, by shaping something, you, um, you know, you you limit what it could be used for, and um, um, and yeah, that. <laughs> so I, I don't think technology is neutral. I, I, I think it's a it's a spectrum, right? So some things are sort of extremely net negative, extremely net positive, and then you'll have stuff that is roughly in the middle. Um, but yeah, and <laughs> I think what you often see with leaders in technology, they they will gladly take credit for the good technology does um, and how they're helping the world with with their technology and how they're curing cancer with their new AI or whatever. Um, but yeah, they, they bring up these um, technologies neutral arguments if they're talking about the, the bad sides. And yeah, I don't think you can have it both ways. <laughs> and uh, uh, so I'm almost like thinking, I don't think engineers and inventors and technologists realize how much power and influence they have over humanity's future. You know, if there's technologists listening, what are there any like heuristics they should and could be following? Um, is it like they need to be better, you know, spending more time in the... Uh, in the R and D phase, spending more time in the pure research of like, let's think through, let's simulate through how if this technology is maximally successful and is deployed, how the world might look. Yeah. Like, should there be more, just much more resources going into that phase? You know, essentially simulating the impacts, or what, what do you think? I think it should start with engineers being aware that they have this much power. Okay, and yeah, that's step one. <laughs> yeah. Um, Admitting you might have a problem. I mean, doctors have this Hippocratic oath. Um, I'm not the first one to suggest that maybe, you know, in you know, just like at med school you have you learn about ethics. Maybe we should have ethics classes in engineering colleges as well. So that people become more aware of okay, the actions I take actually have an impact on on the future. And then you know, whenever I speak to technologists that are working on something that I think is sort of morally questionable, the thing I often hear is like, yeah, it's, it's cool. Like, it's so cool what I'm working on. <laughs> and yeah, I just, um, I would encourage engineers to, yeah, to, to really think through, like, okay, what, how could what I'm building, how could that be used? And is that do I think that's net positive, net negative? Is it sort of uncertain? And what could I do to move towards the positive side on the on the spectrum? Could I impose embed certain safeguards to to do that? Mm. Um, because I, again, I don't. When you think about the development of any technology, people or you know, shaping the direction of the future, people tend to think in terms of financial investment, like oh, we should divest from fossil fuels, and we should, uh, you know, So, it's um, there's often a lot of focus on the money side, but I think realistically, what's most often the the true bottleneck to advance technology, it's it's people, it's uh, you know intellectual resources, it's it's smart people who want to work on it, so. You, know, you as an engineer have tremendous power. Like if you choose to work on, say, a net good technology versus a net bad, te- 
net bad technology, um, you know, you can truly change the cause of humanity because it, um, you, know, you might be, you know, the, the bottleneck for certain technologies to either come to fruition or, or, or not. Were you a competitive person at all yeah, growing uh, up? Did you like sports? No. Winning games? No, I, I did dip my toe, I think, in the in that realm. And, you know, I think um, at some point in time, I, I did try to be sort of the best in my class, but there's always this, this one guy that was at, at higher grades and, you know, we were friends, so it's, I didn't feel very bad about that. But <laughs> uh, it just... And, you know, I was um, very sort of stereotypical Dutch, but I was um, an, an ice skater. So it's, um, and I was just doing this for fun. And then one time there was this competition and um, I fell down and I was second to last. And while I was actually a pretty good ice skater. So now yeah, I just felt like, oh, this is, this doesn't really make me feel happy. And, um, and then there was this whole other realm, which were all these, you know, these these hobby projects of mine, where you know, there was nobody else doing those things. It was just me asking myself, okay, how far can I take this? And and I guess I was insanely competitive in the sense that I was competitive with myself of never being satisfied with what I'm doing. Like even today, I I don't feel I'm. <laughs> particularly successful and um you know but i do have a belief that you know i i, I can be successful in, in in the future but um yeah that's more like a competition with yourself and i i, I guess it, where competition is, is is wrong there because it's more i guess you call it more ambition it sounds like your source of motivation uh, as a non-competitive person and like conventionally competitive mm. person is is as you say with these different versions of yourself so it's a form of like you, you're creating an artificial form of zero sumness yes amongst these different old personas of yourself yeah future me is in competition with, with present, present me exactly yeah. and that is what drives you or do you think if you it do you think you would still have your ambition without this sort of dissatisfaction feeling I, I just find it very hard to be you know to cherish the moment uh it's um and also with you know, the nature of what i'm doing it's you can always be better right so mm. like we had this i guess sort of insane uptick in cleanup performance in recent months. We two-thirds of everything we've collected so far was collected in the past few months, in the past four months or something. Congrats. So, um, so yeah, so it's kind of cool, but of course, um, just focused on you know the next day. Okay, how do we you know double this again? How do we triple this again? So um yeah, I think that's kind of the I guess it's for most entrepreneurs. It's this this uncomfortable situation where, or I suppose this tragic situation where, um, I think if you are satisfied, I think that can lead to complacency. And I think, 
I think there's this hunger for more and dissatisfaction. I think that is, I suppose that is in a sense what you need to, to keep pushing yourself. You know, when you say, oh, you, the, the motivation that drives you to fix the ocean plastic problem is coming from this deep, almost like discomfort and dissatisfaction. Yeah. And I feel like a Buddhist would say, well, you know, that's, if you, if you took a sort of um, that kind of philosophy to its extreme, where everyone is just in a permanently happy, satisfied with the moment state, yeah. then problems, you know, yes, it's true that many problems wouldn't be created in the first right. place, but at the same time, many problems don't get fixed. Sure. So it, it <laughs> yeah. feels to me like we need to harness the, 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 this, like, the energy of the dissatisfaction within people like you. You've found a way to direct that energy into something that's clearly huh. a net positive for the world. And for the most part, a lot of great entrepreneurs have also done that. You know, if I think yeah. about all the big entrepreneurs that I've, I've met, mm. um, they also have this same, like, not working hard enough, need to be doing more, need to be doing more. That is not a good or a bad thing. It's just a tool. And the question is, is what is it directed it towards? What is right. the goal that is being optimized for? Is the goal clearly a win-win or is it more a win-lose or is yeah. it actually a lose-lose? I mean, we, you know, as a, sort of a rationalist person, you always love to you know, to complain about biases and everything, but you know, without optimism bias, like, there would be no people like me. You know, like, it's completely irrational. Like starting, you know, age sixteen, thinking you can clean the ocean. It's like, what's the probability of that? It's like, check your priors. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but still, it's it's. Um, I guess it's important to be irrational at times what advice would you give to anyone who's watching and is inspired by this who now wants to go out and find their own you know figure out what best problem they should be working on you know, one thing that people probably don't think about enough is that you need solutions that people want so i think especially in environmentalism i see you know, a lot of people with the the mindset of, you know, this this is um, this is the solution I'm pushing, but uh, like tragically, nobody wants this solution. If only people were different, if only more people would be like me, and <laughs> it's um, yeah. So you need to have solutions that are, you know, in sort of a Venn diagram that a are effective in solving the problem, and b are things that actually are compatible with the way humanity works and this, how the system works. Because if it's not, it can look great on paper, but it will never work in, in reality. So I guess that's an argument of, of pragmatism, but I think mm -hmm. it's, it's important to, I think you can design your solution in a way that is you know, appealing to, um, to the, the masses. And it's something that people really want. So that's, how would someone think about going, you know, whether a problem should be solved as a non-profit versus for-profit? Because presumably with the ocean cleanup, there's, there was no real way for you to do it as a for-profit, at least certainly yeah. not from the outset. Do you see right. a, a path to for-profit at some point? Yeah, I think it's, it's important to distinguish sort of the legal entity structure, so non-profit, 501c3, for-profit company, whatever, and whether or not you have business models or whether you're just reliant on gifts and philanthropy. Mm. I don't think those two things are necessarily, you know, you think of one being connected to the other, but I think they're actually independent things. So 
um, I think it's very hard for us to to ever not be a nonprofit, but that doesn't mean we can't have you know, real business models uh, mm. to to make this self sustaining to a degree. Of course, at some point in time, you know, we want to help ourselves out of business. We don't want to exist, so <laughs> we shouldn't be too sustainable in our business models. But uh, at least to to scale, I think you need to have some kind of you know, exchange of value, right? So, and definitely when I started the ocean cleanup, um, the that there was just no thinkable path that it could be a for profit. The, the upfront investment required to develop the technology to take those risks, and uh, in light of just very uncertain prospect of whether there would be any money to be made with that just made it like completely impossible to get any for-profit money. So then we just said, okay, no, this needs to happen, so we just do a non-profit. Um, but, and I think that has been amazing, the support we've received from literally millions of people around the world over the years has been, like, <laughs> it's something I just can't get used to. Just, it's... Um, yeah, if, if there's anything that sometimes makes me emotional, it's just this, um, you know, just the amount of goodwill we've received over the years. And um, yeah, it's just school children running around their school to or bake cookies or something to raise money for us. And <laughs> it's just, um, uh, just really, really cool. Um, but um that's amazing, and it, it, it has gotten us to the point of where we are. Uh, I think to to scale, you know, you do need a degree of sustainability that at least you can make financial commitments that are a bit longer term. Mm. You know, if you have to acquire assets or you know have longer term contracts with with operators, etc. So, so I think that's important. You know, to scale the team, that's risky if you continue to live paycheck to paycheck. Um, and also just the the magnitude uh, you know, to scale up. I do think this is world's cheapest world problem. You know, for a few billion, we can solve this. That's actually crazy. So you think for like what, like under five billion, we could solve ocean plastic forever? Yeah, so that's probably the right ballpark. Yeah, is that to stop more plastic going in as well? Yeah, the interceptor side, I think, is cheaper than actually doing the legacy pollution. So I think <laughs> if you can. You don't want to stuff. You don't want stuff to go into the ocean because it's just way more expensive to get it out later. Uh, but it's just ballpark. so. Is it the ballpark of five billion? So to put that into context, yeah. that's two Las Vegas spheres. Yeah, two balls. Two, two, yeah, two <laughs> Las Vegas spheres. But don't get me wrong. I think they're that that thing. I is heard amazing. they're good. Yeah, yeah. I, I haven't seen it. Yeah, I've heard it's absolutely incredible. But just two of those would basically solve the marine plastic problem. Two massive balls. Yeah. Two big balls. <laughs> We just need to trade off of some balls <laughs> to clean the oceans of plastic. That would be, that, I mean, that, that really does just put it into, into perspective, I think. No, it's not unthinkable that it will happen. I think it's, it then becomes a question of sort of willingness of the world. Like, do right. we 
really care about this enough to to do it? That's the thing. I think we we see the will. People do care. Mm. Like I know it's it's a it's a pretty across the board issue that most people like. Would you would you be would you rather there be more or less plastic in the ocean? Like ninety nine point nine percent of people will say most less. people would. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And so the will is there. I think it's probably a combination of people don't believe it's possible. Right. I think it's just a completely intractable problem, mm-hmm. which is not the case, as you mm. said. And again, it comes down to a little bit like the methodology perhaps has disagreements on how it should be done and, right. and, you know, the reasoning, which comes down to this like conflict versus engineering mindset thing. Yep. But even that is like, you know, ultimately, I think most people would get aligned if, it, if, it's, if it's happening. So, yeah, yeah maybe it's uh, in part, you know, when, when you have something like the sphere, again, like the people who build it directly get rewarded. Mm. They're, they're going to get rich from that sphere. Yeah. Right? As, as they should. It's a great mm-hmm. piece of art. The people who build, who clean the oceans of plastic. The biosphere. The biosphere. Here we mm-hmm. go. Wow, pu- pu- just puns out the ass. Um, <laughs> <laughs> aren't, I mean, at the same time, like, there are credits to be given, you know, and yeah. I imagine, um, you know, you've, you're getting some positive feedback, obviously, clearly from d- the work you're doing, mm. right? You're getting, you've got a lot of awards and, and mm. so on. So we need to... Ha- again, it's, it all comes down to incentive structures. Like, yeah. how do we create the incentives that will motivate more people, whether that's, you know, very rich people to fund these projects mm. or politicians to make it their pet cause? Right. How do we do that? You tell me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have the answers either, but yeah, I'm just throwing it out there. any suggestions, please get in touch, <laughs> theoceanclear.com. Uh-huh. Let's, okay, so let's say the five billion has been raised yeah. And it has been successfully deployed and the oceans are now clear of plastic. What would you turn your sights to after that? So my general mission in life is to to make our civilization sustainable, um, to at least help advance that. And, uh, you know, I, I love humanity. I love, um, you know, the, you know, the technological civilization that we've, Built. Sometimes I actually get emotional just thinking about it. I was sitting in an airplane recently actually to to get here, and I thought like, just hit me like this is actually insane. Like if you think about how we've what we have achieved as to have one species of over evolved monkeys in just the past two hundred years, flying through the sky. It's, beautiful it's it's amazing just i'm just so proud of of um of my fellow humans and i guess you know people can get accustomed to everything and um it always strikes me that it's so ironic that you know people are kind of like degrowthers and are rallying against civilization and technology how they write all their angry blogs on you know, advanced technological things like a, a, an iPhone or <laughs> a laptop. Um, so, yeah, like you get very quickly you get used to this. But the, the fact that we have we're inside now and enjoying this comfortable temperature while it's freezing outside, it's it's not normal. <laughs> like in the if you look at the course of humanity, it's it's still mind-blowing to me and I, I think um, that's something that I think I, I want to make sure we can preserve I want to make sure that 
all humans can you know, reap the fruits of, of that and that we can actually take that much further because I don't think this is necessarily the best state we can achieve. I think humanity can advance a lot more, but at the same time, I think we are, uh, it's, it's a fragile civilization and um, I think it would be such a tragedy if, if that potential is, is, is lost. You know, the sort of infantile relationship we have with our, you know, the, the biosphere, I think that is a critical one to, to solve. And there are, of course, other sort of risks and side effects coming from our technology as well that I think we, we need to, to get under control to, um, you know, to safeguard human potential. Um, so I, I hope I will live enough, uh, long enough to have the, you know, the pleasure of working on more problems in, in the future. But I, I, I do really need to have the discipline to work on one at the time, for, at least for now, because I think, you know, I can't do the next thing if I don't have the, you know, the credibility of having solved at least one problem. Um, so, because of course that will require probably way more resources too. And also if, if we're not successful with this, I think not only is there not some other organization that will just stand up and fill that void, but is actually going to actively work against the cause because people say like, look, I mean, they were, they had funding, they had all these smart people working on it, but look, they, even they couldn't do it. So probably it's impossible to, uh, to rid the oceans of plastic. So, so I think that, yeah, I think that is something that sort of weighs heavily on my, my shoulders. I feel like, yeah, we really have this responsibility to, to be successful because, yeah, if we don't do it, I don't think it's really going to happen, at least anytime soon. So there we go. Thank you so much for watching or listening, whatever format you are consuming this in. Huge thank you to Boyan for taking the time to sit down with me. I mean, it's just so great that there is someone out there willing to just dedicate their life to cleaning up after our civilization. And if you enjoyed this, which hopefully you did, considering you've made it to the end and are now listening to this, please like and share it. I, I mean, Boyan's message is so inspirational, so... I want as many people to hear about it as possible. On that note, thank you so much for tuning in and I will catch you next time. Mm -hmm.